Well, this is a special day. It's a holiday weekend, but it is a special day for me and for Lisa personally, a very special day because it was 35 years ago today that I started as the lead pastor here at Idlewild Bible Church, 35 years ago. Yeah. And I would just give God the praise for that because it's pure grace all the way. That in a very gracious church family that has loved on us and been very patient with us and, and just gone with us on this amazing journey. 35 years. I was 27 when I started here at IBC. Uh, a little older than that now, and uh, that's all right. That is all right. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, all right, let's, let's step into the Word. Let's step out of that thought. Let's go into the Word. And, uh, and Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where I'd invite you to go in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Almost in the middle of your Bible, if you're still kind of learning your way where books are in the Bible. Ecclesiastes 3. If you need a Bible, we can certainly supply one of those for you. Uh, just raise your hand. And there's a note page in your bulletin. Please grab that. Uh, I will refer to that from time to time along the way. Many of you probably know the Song of Solomon. If I said, where is the Song of Solomon, you'd say, well, right after Ecclesiastes and right before the book of Isaiah, and you would be right. Would it surprise you then, then if I said that the Song of Solomon was also once a number one hit single on the Billboard 100, and that a good number of you would know the song. Would that surprise you? I don't think that it would. You didn't know Solomon was still writing hits. (laughs) It was actually a collaborative effort in all truthfulness. A guy named Peter Seeger wrote the tune and then borrowed the lyrics from Solomon and Ecclesiastes 3, The song was made famous by a band in the mid-60s. Do you know the name of the band? The Birds. That's right, The Birds, which means you just dated yourself. (laughs) And I dated myself. The Birds. The result of that was a number one hit song in 1965, and it goes like this. Let's listen.
the first service, everybody started singing that song because they're a lot older than you are. <laughs> oh, but, you know, that was, that was fun just to, to kind of go back in time a little bit. But those lyrics, they are remarkably true to the text, aren't they? Back in 1965 with the hippies and the Vietnam War and all that going on, it was good to see the word in that way. The song has the distinction of being the number one hit with the oldest lyrics, 3,000-year-old lyrics. Nicely done, Solomon, right? But while this text might be familiar and it might be popular even today, the meaning of the passage from which these words come is much less well understood. And church family, that's why we're here today. Part of our ongoing verse-by-verse explore of one of the Bible's most amazing and puzzling books. On your note page, Making Sense of My Life Under the Sun. And that pretty much sums up Ecclesiastes as Solomon goes on a no-holds-barred quest to find answers to the questions that people in every age and in every culture want answers to. Why am I here? What is my life for? What is my purpose for being? Where is the secret to a truly meaningful, satisfying, joy-filled life to be found? Where can I go to make sense of my life? Solomon is on a search. And if you have been with us from the beginning, you know that he has had a rough go of it up until now. It seems that everywhere that he looks for a satisfying, purpose-driven life, all he finds is despair and disappointment and frustration. In fact, his clarion cry in the first two chapters, as we have come to see it, is this one. Life is meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, empty, futile meaningless. And the reason for this cry is well known to us by this point. In his search for a life filled with meaning and purpose, he has limited himself to a search where? Under the sun. And that is very important for us to know. That's the key to the book. His search for meaning is under the sun. He's looking for life's meaning without a consistent Godward gaze, a mostly horizontal appraisal of life, no vertical dimension, life under the sun only. Solomon gives us a look at life from the perspective of one who leaves God out of their life. You do that and you end up where Solomon ends up, viewing life as little more than an exercise in futility. On your note page, thus far in his desperate search for a difference-making life, he has sought out solace and answers in nature and in acquiring great knowledge. He does that in chapter 1 and comes up empty. And then in chapter 2, he pursues an unrestrained uh, life of pleasure. Whatever will bring him pleasure, that's what he pours himself into, as well as trying to to find a meaningful life by living wisely and not foolishly. He even tries to live for his children. If he could leave a legacy to them that is significant, maybe that would give his life meaning. Solomon's stepping into every arena of life that he can think of to lay hold of genuine fulfillment. And he's coming up empty. 
With a sigh of desperate disappointment, he says in chapter 2, verse 23, For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is what? Vanity. It's meaningless, he says. Now, in all fairness to Solomon, he did. we did see him last time at the very end of chapter 2, for the very first time, come up above the clouds, above the sun. He says in verse 24, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. First time that he's come out from under the sun. For apart from him, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And he's right. We say right on, Solomon, for life to really mean anything, for it to have purpose and joy and direction, God has got to be included in your life, right? Right? Okay, great. If not, it doesn't make any sense. From under the sun only, it's an empty life. It's a futile life. Now, I wish I could tell you that once out from under the sun, Solomon stayed out. But he doesn't do that. In fact, as chapter 3 opens, he goes back under the sun once more. Verse 1, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter. Where, church? Under heaven. And you say, oh, well, that's different. No, those words under heaven are a synonym for under the sun. Solomon, like any good writer, changes his phrasing and his word choices now and then to keep his readers engaged, but the thought is exactly the same. He's gone back under the sun again, and as he does, he takes us into one of the best-known portions of the book of Ecclesiastes, maybe the best-known portion of this book. Verse 1, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. I don't mean to insult anyone here, but there are a few things that we should take note of as we read through this list, and some of them are very obvious. Right away, we can tell that this is a list of life experiences that are common to all people everywhere in the world. Yes? Absolutely. Though not intended to be an exhaustive list, every one of these is something that people do or endure as they do life in the world, under the sun. Birth, death, weep, dance, keep, throw away, love, hate, engage in war, press for peace. As is his style, Solomon is giving us a kind of a big picture statement in these verses about the reality of the human condition. Our hopes, our despairs, our joys, our pains, our gains and our losses. 
I suspect these words are enduringly popular within and outside of the church because they describe what people experience the world over 24 hours a day, every day of the year for a lifetime. These words describe us, don't they? In fact, where are you right now in Solomon's song? Here. Where are you? Don't answer out loud. But you're somewhere in this list. Where are you? Notice as well that each of these lines show extreme opposites. Love and hate and war and peace and breakdown and build up. Solomon names the extremes for a purpose. He, extre- he names the extremes so that by doing so, he includes everything that exists between those two points. Verse 1, for everything, all of it, in the middle and at each end, everything, there is a season. There is a time. In fact, that word time shows up 29 times in these verses. Life has times. It has Seasons. It has episodes. It has chapters. Times of this and times of that. Everything has a season. And to leave one season is to do what? Enter into another season, right? We know that. We've lived it. And perhaps the most important feature to notice about this list of our times is that these are all things that are beyond our ability to control. Did you observe that? Yeah. These are circumstances and our responses to circumstances that have come to us without asking our permission first. Sometimes they have been brutally thrust upon us. They threaten to overwhelm us. Many we never see coming. Times of mourning, for example, they are always a painful, unwelcomed interruption into our life. Often equally unexpected are seasons of joy-filled surprise. We didn't see them coming, but there they are, and we're glad that they are there. Life brings us both of these, and often without any warning, and certainly with no consulting of us. Solomon, who's now back under the sun, is essentially saying to us, here is something else that I observe as I search for life that is meaningful and satisfying. I observe that I am not in control of the events and circumstances of my life under the sun. I'm dancing to tunes, perhaps many tunes, and none of them are of my making. And if this is true, and it is, then what is the satisfaction? What is the meaning that I would derive from living if all that I am doing is responding and reacting to life as it comes at me, unrelentingly comes at me. Where is the satisfaction and the meaning in that? I'm just a responder to the inexorable seasons of my life. That's the point of these verses. Now, many will not pick up on that, I suspect, diverted by the lyrical flow of the seasons. But we know that this is where Solomon is going to go because of what we read in verses 9 to 14. And we will get to that in just a moment. But before we do, brothers and sisters, what Solomon has done is create a list 
designed to remind you and me that while we may think we are in control, the real things that shape and influence our lives in this world are out of our control. Do you ever feel that way? Is it just one or two over here that feel that way? Okay, everybody feels like there's times when I'm totally out of control, right? Of course we feel that. We all do. And we all will again. Church family, I remember very vividly the day I was walking from my office to my car and my cell phone rings, and it's my dad. He says, without any introduction, without any warning, he says, Tim, I was called into my doctor's office today. There's this long pause. Dad? Dad, are you, are you still on the line? He said, yes. He says, he says I, I have terminal cancer, blood cancer, Tim. Multiple myeloma. Another long pause. Terminal, Dad? How long, Dad? How long? Weeks? Maybe months, he said. Weeks, months. I officiated my dad's funeral six months after that phone call. Where did that come from? We weren't planning that in the Westcott house. It wasn't on our calendar. What it was was a phone call that reminded me we have no control. October 26, 2006. An arson-set wildfire overwhelms the Engine 57 crew as they fight the Esperanza fire. In an instant, Maria Lotzenheiser, our Maria, is a widow, and her children have no earthly father. Did Maria see that coming? Did she know that that was going to happen on that Thursday morning? She had no choice. That was totally out of her control. By the way, she gave me permission to share that with you. What do you think? How do we react when life brings a sudden season of change? Solomon is grappling with this in his desperate under-the-sun search to make sense of his life. We make our plans. We act like we're in control. But there is a season for everything, whether we have planned it or not, like it or not, are ready for it or not, it is coming, isn't it? This list of Solomon's is too long to take on in total, but we can just lay hold maybe of a few highlights to give us the the sense of the whole. In verse 2, for example, we read, there is a time to be born and a time to die. Solomon leads out with the two bookends of life, doesn't he? The day we are born and the day that we die. If there are two things that are ordered by a power outside of ourselves, it is our birth and it is our death. How many of you, raise your hand, how many of you had a say in planning the day that you came into the world? Show of hands? None of us, right? It wasn't our choice. 
Similarly, we cannot control or know the day that will be our last day on this earth. Both the starting and the ending of our earthly life is out of our control. Someone might say, well, what about the person who takes their own life? Aren't they in control? You know, that's a fair question. God's word, as you know, never, ever condones suicide. Ever. That would not have been in Solomon's thoughts here. And though not everyone might agree with me, a strong case, I believe, can be made for saying that other events or circumstances not chosen are behind the tragic decision that someone makes to take their own life. Thus affirming what Solomon says, we don't choose. Birth and death are beyond us. In verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. Isn't it strange, church family, how on the evening news life seems to ebb and flow back and forth between a battlefield and a first aid station? The stories just kind of move in those two places. The police officer is forced to shoot, to kill. No choice. His job is to serve and protect. He fires at a suspect who is firing at him. Kill or be killed. No choice. The next scene shows the paramedics feverishly performing chest compressions, trying to keep this person alive who was shooting at the police officer. No choice. Out of control the circumstances that lead to killing and to healing. Verse 4. Now, this is a verse that is relatable to all of us. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. These are seasons that we all experience. Weeping and mourning signify the tragic and the painful. Laughing and dancing signify the opposite of that. One is the funeral home, the other is the wedding reception. And we get to experience them both, don't we? In this little verse, church family, I want to linger for just a second because I perceive a possible kindness, a, a gift from God, perhaps to someone is, who is here today. Maybe more than one who is here today. Sometimes when we've experienced a season of mourning or pain, we feel a sense of obligation or duty to remain in that place of mourning. We feel loyalty to the losing cause that we stood up for. Or we feel devotion for the person that we lost. They've been taken out of our life. A biblical example of this would come out of the life of Naomi from the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. If you know her story, you know that her husband died, as did her two sons, leaving her utterly destitute. She was so committed to her sorrow and to her loss that she actually changes her name from Naomi to Mara, which means bitter. When you change your name to bitter, you're committing to live in unending mourning, aren't you? I'm going to stay in that place. I must never get over this. I must never get past this. I must always be in this season. I'm loyal to it. I'll always be Mara. But if you know the story, Mara didn't stay Mara, did she? 
She doesn't. No, the book of Ruth ends with Naomi permanently cared for in the home of Ruth and Boaz, helping to raise their son Obed, who will eventually become the grandfather of King David, right? So she will actually become part of the line of Jesus in a very interesting, grace-filled way. So hear me. Hear me when I say that some of us need biblical permission to get back to being a Naomi and not a Mara. The person we were before that great season of sorrow or loss blasted into our life without permission. There needs to be a time for mourning, yes, a time for tears, absolutely. But seasons are called seasons for a reason, aren't they? They are not intended to be permanent places. I wonder. I just wonder. I've been praying. Is is it time, using that word, is it time for you to leave behind your sense of obligation or duty to a season of mourning or pain? You'll never leave behind the love you feel. Just the Mara. Just the, just the bitter sorrow. Is it time to experience perhaps a new season of replanting? Maybe of gathering stones, building, laughing, dancing again? God brings those into our life as well to be enjoyed. I'll bet somebody here today, someone here today really needs Ecclesiastes 3, verse 4. We could linger much longer on other stanzas from Solomon's song in 2 through 8, but he's made his point clear enough, I think, for us, so we won't do that. If you'll flip your little note page over then, he says, I look at my life in this world and my place in it, and this I can see very clearly. I have what? No control. I have no control, none, zero. Now, given what we have seen from Solomon previously in chapters 1 and 2, this is where we would expect him to say, so I hated life, right? I have no control. I hate my life because what is done under the sun is grievous to me. It's vanity. It's striving after wind. We've heard him say those words. We would expect him to say them again right here. But he doesn't do that. He actually goes above the sun again. And we say thank you. (laughs) Because when he does, he discovers that though he may have no control, he can still have a life that is meaningful and satisfying and sense-making and purpose-filled. Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. And that business is the list of verses 2 through 8. I've seen it all there. Verse 11. He, that is God, has made everything what? Beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done 
from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people, what? Fear before him. Solomon looks at his life in this world and takes things to their logical conclusion under the sun, asking in verse 9, if this season, these seasons come and go and we, we have no control over them, what gain do we have from all of our effort? If politics and financial markets and hurricanes and, and droughts and terror attacks and sudden health crises as well as bumper crops and rising stocks and young love and new babies and perfect health and moments that make us dance are completely unpredictable, what's the point of all of our effort? Well, that's a fair question, isn't it? Solomon asks the question, and then thankfully the Holy Spirit moves through Solomon to answer the question finding it impossible, as he does, not to bring God into his answer. Look again at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. What does everything mean? Everything, right? Everything. Verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time, and here God makes everything beautiful in its time. What Solomon says, in effect, is, though I have no real control over my life, God is in control of what? Everything in my life. Over the course of time, he works in all the seasons of my life, the good times and the bad times, and he transforms them into something beautiful, even if I can't seem to figure it out or understand what he's doing. It's a remarkable statement here, church family, about God and his sovereign rule over his world. In fact, does this part of verse 11, the first part of the verse, sound very similar to a New Testament verse that you know? Yes? What about Romans 8:28? And we know that for those who love God, what? All things, everything works together for good, for what is beautiful, for those who are called according to his purpose. Both Ecclesiastes 3.11 and Romans 8.28 are verses declaring the sovereignty of God over everything in this world. Now, some of us may not really understand what does that term sovereignty of God means. So here's a definition we'll put up on the screen. The sovereignty of God means that he has total control over what? All things, all things, past, present, and future. Nothing happens that he doesn't know about and control. All things are, are either caused by him or allowed by him for his own purposes and through his perfect will and timing for his ultimate glory. He is the only absolute and omnipotent ruler of the universe and is sovereign in creation, providence, and redemption. God is sovereign over our seasons. Agreed? <laughs> yeah. A particular season may be 
unspeakably tough or overwhelming, but the power of God is greater than the season. That's what this verse is declaring. The comfort that is ours in any season of life is that everything happening to us is controlled by a God who loves us and promises in the end, I'll make it good, Romans 8. I'll make it beautiful, verse 11 of chapter 3. Nothing is random. Nothing is chance. All is sovereignty. Do you believe it today, church? Do you believe it? Was this not the truth that the Old Testament patriarch Job was holding on to with white knuckles when, not because of anything that he had done, good or bad, he loses everything in his life? I mean everything. Here's what he says. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What is Job declaring? He's declaring the truth of the sovereignty of God in his life. He saw through the veil of painful circumstances past that, past that, through that, past that devastating loss to a gracious God who alone has the sovereign right to give and to take away. And Job let God be God in his life. And he survived this season. You know, we love God's sovereignty when he's giving. We struggle when he takes away, don't we? But he's the same God. And so, brothers and sisters, the only real solid ground we have to stand on when life's unpredictable seasons roll through it is to say, I have no control, none, zero, but God is in control of all things, and he will make the bitter beautiful in my life. Yeah? On your note page, therefore I know three truths that will serve me well no matter what season I am in. And these all flow from Solomon as he looks above the sun at a sovereign God. The first truth, my life will always have the mystery of what? Why? In in verse 11, after affirming that God is sovereign over his world, he says, also God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There are seasons to our lives that, 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 that we just can't help but say, why, God? Right? Why? Why Why this? Why now? Why for this length of time? Why, God, this season in my life? What good end can this possibly serve? When the seasons roll through your life, do you ever ask why? Do you? Am I the only one? No. We all ask why. There's this mystery. I I, want to know why these things happen to me. The animal kingdom doesn't do this. Did you realize that? The animal kingdom doesn't go here at all. Just us. Animals take whatever the day or the moment brings. A dog well fed and, and lying in front of the fire is not contemplating tomorrow. Nor wondering why am I here in this moment today. Life just is. The next moment may change, but that's the next moment. I'll deal with that, and I'm not going to ask why. But God has uniquely placed in his image bearers in us an awareness of eternity, 
life beyond the moment. We have an innate longing to see our lives in some fuller, more disclosed way because God has placed an awareness in us that that we're bigger than time. We're more than the time that we have on this earth. And so we ask the question, why? We're frustrated because we're finite. We can't take in the whole of what God is doing, so, so we're frustrated. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God discloses this about himself. Remember these verses? My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What's God saying? (laughs) You're going to always have why questions, but you're not always going to have answers. Because I'm God and you're not. The angels, on the, on, the, on the day that Jesus ascends back into heaven in Acts chapter 1, the, the disciples are looking up into heaven, and, and what do the angels say to them? Verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You're always going to have why questions. You're not always going to get the answer. I'm God, and you're not. You know, we like it. We are like a a desperately nearsighted person who's inching their way along the backside of an incredibly intricate and beautiful tapestry that is the size of North America. Can you picture this in your mind? You on the backside of that giant tapestry. We're trying from the backside to get the full picture, right? We want to see the whole thing. And we're just this tiny, tiny little part. We're on the backside and... And we see these little tufts of thread and and little colors and and the knots of our lives and the lives of those who are immediately around us. And we look at all that and we say, I want to know the big picture. And God says, too bad. Right? I'm God and you're not. You will always have why questions in this life. But we know that we fit into this incredibly magnificent grand picture. We just don't know how. We're eternity conscious and yet limited by our finiteness. And you know what, church family? We need to thank God for that. Because it drives us to trust him with all of our questions, right? That's the second truth there. Eternity in my heart moves me towards God as the maker and sovereign ruler over all things. And because he's in control of all things, I can trust him and enjoy my life even though it will have many different seasons that hold many uncertainties. That's verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as as long as they live Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to us. What can we know for certain about the future, brothers and sisters? What can we know for certain about the future? Nothing, right? We don't even know what the next two minutes are going to hold. We really don't know. What, What can we absolutely control about the future? Nothing. Nothing. God is neither obligated to reveal nor intending that we should have all the answers to our why questions. It's enough for us to know that he is weaving and working to make all things beautiful eventually. And though we can't fathom it, we can trust him 
when those seasons and times, painful and hard, joyful as well, make no sense. God's sovereign control over our lives should never make us angry or fearful. They should drive us to trust him. And that's Solomon's point, isn't it? He wants us to trust God. How many of us rode the school bus to school when we were kids growing up? See the hands of everybody who rode a school bus? Yeah, not everybody, but many of you did. Now, I want you to think back to that time. Do you remember worrying about where the bus was going or how it was going to get there when you were a kid riding on the school bus? Do you remember doing that? I don't remember doing that. A typical school bus is filled with a bunch of kids who who really don't care, right, (laughs) about where the bus is going or how it's going to get there. We knew there was there was there was uh, there was a bus driver, and eventually we're going to get to the school. How we get there, that's in the driver's hands. Because we trusted Mrs. Smith or Mrs. Davis's experience in driving ability, that meant that we were free to laugh, to giggle, to play on the bus while the bus went wherever it was going to go. But what if there was no one at the wheel? Would you get on that bus? No. But you know, that's what the atheist believes. They're on a bus with no driver, right? Because there's no God. And the deist and the agnostic, he believes that God's at the wheel of the bus, but he really doesn't care about the people on the bus. He's disinterested. The Bible says that God is at the wheel and he loves the kids, right? We need to understand that we're on a, on a bus that will arrive at a beautiful destination. And on purpose, the bus driver, who is sovereign, is going to take unexpected turns. And he's going to go and, and ride on some really rough roads at times. And sometimes, it, riding on this bus, we're going to have to ride with people that are really unpleasant. <laughs> You're right. Sometimes the bus is going to go so slow. Why won't you go faster, bus driver? Sometimes it'll be going so fast, we'll say, slow down, bus driver. But we know that the bus is going to get to its destination because its driver is God. And it's not for us to worry about the ride. Our responsibility is to trust the driver, right? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Do they come to mind? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will what? He will drive the bus, right? God is what allows us not to despair when our bus hits a patch of rough road or the weather turns dark and stormy. We know where the ride ends, and we know who's driving the bus. Be joyful and do good because you know this truth. That's verse 12. This leads us to that third truth there on your note page. And in light of the fact that God is in control of all things, it's only right that we should do what? Worship him. Worship him and give our lives fully to him. Verse 14. 
I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. That's the sovereignty of God. God has done it so that people fear. The Hebrew word means to revere, to honor, to worship. God sovereignly rules so that we will worship him only. What Solomon is telling us is that God sovereignly orchestrates the seasons of our lives to help us see that we're not in control, that he is in control, and our needs drive us to him and him only. Never was God's love for a sinful humanity caught in time. Never was his love more clearly put on display than the moment when he broke into time personally in the person of Jesus and went to the cross and died for sinners. You and me, right? That's when we knew beyond all doubt that the driver of the bus really loves the kids. New Testament says it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the time was exactly right, exactly what God wanted it to be, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what, church? To redeem, to buy back with his blood those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, as daughters. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still sinners, weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We cannot understand his timing, but we can wonder at it and with worshipful reverence submit our lives to his will, to his clock, to his timing, to his seasons. We can submit our lives to his son. Amen. In whom we have forgiveness and eternal life, may we love and trust the one who controls our That's the heart of Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 15. Let's pray together. We thank you for taking us into your word and for challenging us, Lord. Once again, by your spirit, we have the truth. We don't have clever little sayings, pithy little thoughts. We have the truth. And the truth helps us live well for you. In this room right now, Lord, I know there are There are people, my friends, who are in really tough seasons. And they, they, they cover the gamut. They're all over the place. And then I have other friends who are dancing today. And in my life, there's both of these things, hard times and very pleasant times. And you are the sovereign God over all of it. Oh, may we have your peace. May we have your rest. As we live in the truth of your sovereign control not needing to have every why question answered. You're big enough. We'll allow you to be our God. We will be your children. And Lord, thank you that you're driving the bus and you love the kids. In Jesus' strong name and all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand together.